You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. Well, this is week number five in our victory uh, verse series. We're talking about scriptures that change everything. Everything. These are explosive verses in God's word. Again, I remind you, all scripture is profitable, all of it. But some seems to be more profitable than others. Some scriptures, when they're understood in their context, in, 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 in the purest form, explode in our hearts and change our lives in a way that, that maybe others uh, aren't, as, aren't as impactful. So we're going to look at one this morning. In just a moment, we're going to reveal a victory verse. But I want to introduce it. It's going to take me a little while. I need some runway space. So I need your attention. Sometimes when uh, we take a little while to develop the message and we don't give a note for a long time, uh, if you're not careful, you can, you can disengage. I, I don't want you to do that. I'm going to work hard not to let you do that. But I, I want to begin this morning with, with a statement that will probably get your attention. You may find this victory verse to appear negative. This doesn't seem, it seems to be an oxymoron. Victory, negative. Victory's not negative, is it? Well, not all victory verses are, are highs. Not all victory verses are mountaintop experiences. In fact, sometimes it's in the losses, it's in the negatives that we're able to go further for God. Sometimes it's not the wins that we learn the greatest lessons. Sometimes it's in the losses. I got home about 2.30 in the morning this morning. I traveled with uh, the champion Tiger uh, college basketball team on their yearly journey to Joplin, Missouri. We were a sixth seed, which was a lower seed in the, in the national tournament. And uh, we ended up beating the, the number three seed. We beat the number two seed. These are much larger universities, much more, many more players. We, we were the underdogs. We beat both of those teams. And then we came to the championship game last night. And... Uh, we had a lot of you that watched it online, and I know uh, Coach Jesse's here. Coach Cody was in the morning service. Coach Jesse's in this service. We, uh, we lost that game with about 10 seconds left. We were down by two, but, oh, excuse me, three seconds left, down by two, and uh, a, a, a nice look at the basket, but it rimmed off, and, and we lost the game in, in, in the last moments of that game, and we came short of winning our fourth national championship here, in, a champion in our first in nine years. Well, so close. It was devastating. A lot of tears, man, a lot of emotions. Uh, it was a hard, hard loss. We get to the locker room. And, you know, there's still a lot of, a lot of you know, processing. And it was beautiful to watch the players kind of calm down. Uh, it was beautiful to watch the coach begin to share his heart. He went through each and every player. And he talked about him. He loved on him. They began to love on each other. We began to realize that, wait a minute, God's, God's doing something here. We saw a metamorphosis with our team, even spiritually. We ended up being, in many ways, the talk of the tournament. Um, we, had, we had players that weren't maybe as familiar with a Christian college in the beginning of the year, but as the year grew on, and, and to be honest, some of the players thinned out. We ended up with a group that had great cohesiveness, loved one another, and began to understand maybe a little bit about the love of God the love of leadership, and God did a work. It was just sweet. You say, yeah, but you lost. Yeah, I know. But you know what? Sometimes, even in losses, 
you can find the great victories. I remember when I was in high school, I was, uh, <clears throat> I should have told this story last night in the locker room, but I forgot. But I was a senior in high school. My mom and dad were divorced when I was a, when I was a child. And I loved basketball. In fact, to be honest, my dream, every kid has a dream, right? And it's a dream I grew up wanting to be an NBA basketball coach. You say, why not a star player? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Do you see? <laughs> really? Okay. Anyway, coach. And uh, if you've ever seen Jeff Van Gundy, actually people think I look like him. So anyway, that's just an inside joke. But I was in my senior year. <clears throat> my dad lived in New Orleans. And he, he hardly ever got to come see me play, rarely, usually once a year. Well, we ended up making it to the championship game in my senior year in Little Rock, Arkansas, against Heritage Christian School. Heritage was a large school, a very large school, 500 students at the time, you know. We were a smaller school here in Hot Springs, but we always had a good basketball program, <clears throat> at least while Tony Thomas and I were on the team. It was good. And... Uh, in fact, the older I get, the better I get. It's crazy. But anyway, um, so we, we made it to the championship game, and my dad drove all day 500 miles to come to that game. I was so excited. That had a, a great tournament. And I was so excited that my dad was going to be there for my final high school basketball game. And so I'd had a, got to the end of the game. Dad was in the audience. Dad had been cheering me on the whole game. We were, we were down by, uh, as I recall, one point. There were about nine, 10, or 11 seconds left. And our coach, Larry Stevens, called a timeout. And we went to the sidelines, and uh, I'd scored 37 points that night. I had had a great night. It was, it was just a dream come true for my dad to see me play that well, you know. But that wasn't the most important thing. The most important thing was that we win this game. So we're down by one, and I go to, and you know, sometimes it's not necessarily being cocky or prideful. It's just in the moment when you're feeling it, if you've played sports at all, you know, you just get confidence. And you, you, in that moment, you, you, you may say something that in a, in, a, in a sermon illustration sounds arrogant, but at the moment it was just exciting. And I looked at the coach and I said, Coach, I want the last shot. My dad's here tonight, it's my senior year, and I'm going to make the shot. Coach said, you didn't have to ask. So he drew the play up, designed for me to get the ball. We had a guy on our team named Craig Chancellor. And, and every time I say that name, it's kind of a mixed emotions, because Craig was one of the first uh, young men that I buried as a pastor. I did his funeral as a young man. He was in a very tragic car accident. Craig went to be with the Lord in his 20s. And it was, a, it, was a, it was a sad day for me. So when I say his name, it just brings back a lot, of, a lot of memories, floods of emotions. Craig was to set a pick for me. And I was to go around the pick on the inbounds play and get to the corner because my favorite shot was the baseline jumper. Tony remembers this. I love the baseline shot. That was my favorite shot. And, <clears throat> you know, I just knew I was going to make this shot. And by the way, the play was designed perfectly. There were no breakdowns on the play. It worked great. There was a right screen. I went around the screen. I got to the corner. I got the ball. Ready, set, shoot. Perfect. The shot was great. Elbow was in. Wrist was perfect. Pointing at the basket when I was all done. Great elevation on the basketball shot. Everything was perfect. Good rotation. It was sweet. It was going to be 39 points for me. We're going to win by one. And this is all going to happen in my senior year, my last game in front of my daddy. This is a story I'll never forget except I missed the shot. 
it went pop, 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 and out. It was devastating. I remember going to the locker room, and I mean, crying like a baby. I mean, I put my head in my hands and wept and wept as the coach tried to give this lame speech about, you know, it's all right, guys, you know, it's, you know, God's on the throne and, you know, all the things. And I'm like, man, that's the shot. I'm just crying. I didn't hear much of what he said. And I remember sitting there in that locker room, senior, 18 years old, surrendered to preach the gospel when I was 16, 15, excuse me, 15. And, uh, but I, I honestly got to be, I, I, I've got to be truthful here. I, I, I worshiped basketball more than I worshiped the creator. You see, I'd shed more tears after missing that shot than I'd ever shed over a lost soul, ever. I cried more over a missed shot than over people falling into hell. And as I lay, sat there and wept and cried, I, I don't know. I don't know how God works. I just know he works in mysterious ways. And when I had put my head in my hands in, the, in, in, in coming into the locker room, I know there was not a basketball there, but somehow, some way, God put one there when the locker room was empty. And I took my head out of my hands and I saw Spalding. That's the name of the basketball, Spalding. And I realized that he had been my God. And I confessed the sin of idolatry in the sin of worshiping something more than God. And I got clean. I got cleansed. I gave up my dream of being a head basketball coach. Thus, I'm your pastor today. (laughs) And to be honest, you know, what just ended up being initially one of the saddest stories you ever heard. Oh, oh, you thought the shot was going in. You were about to clap. Now you're clapping because I missed the shot. And I'm worshiping Jesus more than basketball. You see, because sometimes it's in the losses It's in the negatives. It's in the valleys of life that we experience the greatest victories. So with that said, I want to begin some thoughts here. I want to build, uh, I want to build this message and, and, and I want you to pay close attention. It's not a lengthy message, but I do take a little while to get to the notes. But once we get there, we move pretty fast. So by way of introduction, I want to say this, that Gospelite Baptist Church has a, a short history of 26 years. We started off as, uh, as an independent church, but we've always believed the Bible basics, the history of our church, though we were always an evangelical church, we transitioned here recently about a year ago into a, the Southern Baptist Convention. So we would be considered an evangelical Southern Baptist church. We believe the, uh, the inerrancy of the scriptures. We believe in the virgin birth. We believe in, in fact, it's pretty cool if you ever want to go on to the Southern Baptist National Convention website, there's a really cool document called the Baptist Faith and Message. It was uh, written in the year 2000, and uh, it's, it's something that we as Southern Baptists kind of hold to be the basic beliefs. It's, it's a simple document, but it says so much so profoundly. I want to say this about our church, based on our history and what we've come out of and what we are today, that we are in zero danger of falling into the legalism of our fundamentalist beginnings. It's just... I don't feel any temptation to go back. I just don't. I feel like God has grown us spiritually out of legalism and into something that is very special. But I want to say this is a fact, what I'm about to say. It's a fact that can be documented in many different ways. 
But evangelicals have increasingly drifted through concern over legalism into license. Every survey indicates that we are now nearly undiscernible as Christians, as evangelicals, from our non-believing neighbors. Think of it. Every survey says we have the same divorce rate as they do. We have the same rates of addiction as the world does. Christians. We are suing each other at the same rate that the world sues each other. Now, today, for whatever reason, Christians have no problem suing one another, even though Scripture teaches against it. And many other things that do not constitute a biblical call to holiness that we're discussing this morning. So this victory verse, it's not a strong verse about behavior. I'm not going to be talking about behavior. But this victory verse is a fresh view of the holiness of God, which I'm convinced we need. So let's begin with this. God is infinite holiness. God is unmeasurable, unfathomable, unalterable, infinite holiness. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 6, where I have you in the, in the word this morning, <clears throat> we see here the prophet Isaiah. He begins by saying, in the year that King Uzziah died, just a little kind of an FYI here, Uzziah reigned 52 years in Israel. Uzziah was a, uh, a king who started off well, but he ended off dying a very sad death of leprosy. Because of his pride, he built himself up. And so Isaiah was writing this during a time when Israel was in a very tough spot in moral decline. Isaiah was called to minister to the affluent leaders of his day. He preached the holiness of God during the reign of four different kings. Just to giving you a little background on who this prophet is. He ministered without compromise, much like we need to do today in a world of moral decline. Isaiah is considered to be the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. While Jonah ran, and while Jeremiah wept, and while Habakkuk cried, How long? Jeremiah stood and proclaimed the righteous character of God to a nation that was in a moral freefall. That's who we're talking about this morning. We're talking about the holiness of God, but we're looking at what Isaiah saw when he saw God in the midst of all of that that was going on. So look, if you would, at Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1 again. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. We sang upon, about that this morning. He was high and he was lifted up. Why was he sitting well, first of all, he was sitting because he can. He's God. He's not wringing his hands this morning. He's not worried about what's going to happen. He's in total control. In fact, someone has said that God rules the universe sitting on a throne with his feet propped up because he's in total control. Look, if you would, please, at verse number one again. It says, he was high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Isaiah is being supernaturally transported into the presence of the throne room of the God of the universe. And he says in verse number two, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And again, we could expound some there, but I think I want you to concentrate on what this looks like in your mind, what this must have been like, what was taking place here as one of these angels called out to the other and said something. You've got one angel crying out to the other angel, one on one side of the throne of God, one on the other side of the throne of God, and one angel cries out to the other angel while the other angel cries out to this angel and they are both saying the same thing. What are they saying? Well, Think of all the things that evangelicalism in this new millennium would put on the lips of these angels that are serving the seated sovereign. I can hear most of us saying, well, he must be saying loving, loving, loving. Well, those angels must be saying patient, patient, patient. Or maybe they're saying merciful, merciful, merciful. Or I know what they're saying. Full of grace, full of grace, full of grace. All of those things are true about him. He is loving. He is patient. He is merciful. He is full of grace. But none of them are so foundational as to what they are actually saying, church. They are saying holy, holy holy. And if you and I want to know the God of the universe, we must start with this. This is what we start with. His holiness. The definition of holy, it means separate. Not separate like distance, not separate like he's far off, but separate in that he is so distinct, not like us, not anything like us. Compared to us, there is nothing to compare to him. He is holy. 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 The repetition expresses the force. Three times it's repeated. Exodus chapter 15 and verse 11 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome, awesome, in glorious deeds, doing wonders. It's a time in my life where I used to word, use that word about everything. I mean, I was known for using that word. I, I was in jest, made fun of a little bit in a, in, a, in, a, in a sweet way. You know, here comes Mr. Awesome. Everything's awesome. Here's Awesome Capace. If you talk to him for five minutes, he's going to tell you ten things are awesome. And three years ago, I read that verse and God convicted me. I'm not awesome. You're not awesome. And we're not awesome. God told me, hey, that, that word's for me. God alone is awesome. And I think sometimes we, we, we tend to enjoy the intimacy of God so much that we forget his transcendency. We love the touchy-feely emotion, and I do too, in the presence of God and all the sweet Worship songs that we sing, but lest 
we forget his holiness. Look at verse 3. Again, it says that the whole earth is full of his glory. Meaning there is no place on earth that God could not declare, this is mine, I made this. And so all of it shouts to beautiful design that exclaims there is a God who made all of this and he fit it all together with such beauty and choreography. And we look at the universe and what we know of it, it probably is eight billion times bigger than we could ever imagine. This is the God whom we worship this morning. The whole earth is full of his glory. Notice in verse 4, as the scene continues to grow, it says that the foundations of the threshold, Isaiah describes, shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Wow. Our our intimacy with God is real. Our intimacy... Intimacy with God is genuine, it's special, and it was special this morning, but it also must have with it the lion and the lamb. We like the lamb, don't we? But we forget about the lion. The terror-producing awareness of his transcendence that gives to me the sense that though he loves me dearly and forgives me completely, I can't just act any way I want. I sense church for the evangelical church. The pendulum has swung so far this way. That many Christians are living so far from legalism. They have given themselves license to do whatever they want. Sleep together. Drink alcohol to the point of drunkenness. Say things with our lips that aren't really Becoming of a Christian. Now on to verse 5. The prophet's response. So serious. And yet so seldom seen. From me. It's the victory verse. So what does that mean? Well it means for this series it changes everything. So you ready to be changed? This is the first response to what the prophet sees in Isaiah 6, 5. I've got it on your screen so you can fill it out in your notes. And I said, here was the prophet's response to what he saw when he saw God sitting on the throne and the seraphims and his train that filled the temple. He said, woe is me. For I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. The things I say with my lips, the things I don't say. This morning when we read that prayer that was that Jordan had on the screen, I mean, I wept. I thought, God, what am I singing? Your praise will ever be on my lips. It's not even true about me right now, God. How many times has my praise not been on your lips? How many times did I said things that I regretted saying? How many times did I say something, let alone do something that did not honor you, God? Just my, let's start with my lips, God. My lips are unclean. Woe is me.
I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king. And I'll never be the same again. This is the response of a real encounter with God. This. Peter has the Lord revealed in Luke chapter 5 in the miraculous catch of fish. And here's what Peter said. Depart from me. For I'm a sinful man, O Lord. John in Revelation chapter 1 says in verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And he says a few things. And then down on verse 17, he responds like this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And now Isaiah says, woe is me. All real contact with God produces a sense of unworthiness. Wow, preacher. Man, I like this series until this sermon. I mean, I was really feeling good about myself. In fact, I'll be honest, man. I felt like I'm awesome every time I walked out of church. And now you're telling me I'm not awesome. Exactly. That's the victory. This is what's going to change your life. How you view yourself. In a sentence summary, I would put it like this. I am a sinful person. Yes. Yes, I am gospel graced. Yes, I am fantastic forgiven. But church, I remain in my human condition. I'm not yet holy. I am not yet righteous. And to take the gospel of grace and convert it to I am awesome is what the Bible calls self-righteousness. And that is why this verse is life-changing. Because when you understand this, it changes your theology. It changes it. It's not me awesome. It's God's awesome. It changes how you see yourself. I'm not better than my neighbor. I'm not better than the person I work with. I'm not better than the people marching in the protest parades. I'm not better than people doing this or doing that. I'm not better than anyone. I'm saved. I'm saved. But when the lifeguard saves the drowning man from the ocean and pulls him out of the water, the drowning man doesn't come out and say, ha ha, I'm awesome. No, the drowning man looks at the man that saved him and says, thank you for saving me. Thank you. For saving me. Somehow the, through the passing of time. It seems as if. The evangelical church has become harsher. And more selfish. And more self-righteous. And more judgmental. We're harder on each other. We're harder on ourselves. We are forgetting that the gospel is. Jesus righteous. Not me righteous. Not me better. Not me, me, me. And so I want to leave you with these thoughts. And I want you to pay attention to these thoughts because this is where we can allow the Holy Spirit to do some surgery and and where we can see this verse become truly a victory verse that we can leave here thinking, you know what, I'm not awesome, but God is. And I'm going to say these next things with I in front of them, lest anyone here think that this has not changed my life first 
So you can join me if you'd like, or you can pass. But I'm going to go ahead and use the personal pronoun I, just so you know that I needed this way before you did this morning. I might be self-righteous. Number one, if I have a false standard for measuring righteousness. A false standard. What do I mean by that? Well, things not clearly in the Bible that I've decided are important. They're not clear. But you know, God, God sometimes needs a little help. And so things that God, the Holy Spirit, did not see fit to inspire the writer to write down, well, I helped God a little bit. I figured out that somehow I have the fuller edition. And I bring to the table my preferences with equal weight on behavior. And I judge and assess others who don't conform to what my standard is. I don't really have a Bible verse for it, but who cares? Because, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty smart. and I went to Bible college. And I just learned some things that you guys need to know. You see, you might be self-righteous if you have a false standard for measuring righteousness. So I know I might be self-righteous if my attitude at times is, look how she dresses. Look how she does her hair. Look what he drives. Look where they live. Look how they raise their children. How they entertain themselves. He still smokes. You know, one of the greatest things about our church, I love this. I love sometimes walking in the building and shaking the hand of a man or even a woman. Might be putting out a cigarette, but I love shaking their hands and just saying, I'm glad you're here. I love you. You're welcome here. I love the fact that people are welcome at our church, even if they don't have it all together. Even if in a certain area, maybe I've kind of moved past it, but here's the thing. (laughs) There's some things in my life that they've probably moved past. Number two, I might be a self-righteous if grace is a one-way street. I'm pretty amazed at how many of us need grace, but don't want to give grace. Blows me away. We like needing it. And, 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 and when we need it, we want it. And we better get it. And we like to sing about it. But when someone needs a little grace, are you serious? What's wrong with you? I might be self-righteous if grace is a one-way street. Number three, I might be self-righteous if I'm better than, I'll just let you fill in the blank. 
anyone. I'm better than those addicts, I'll tell you that for sure. Am I really? I think the, the truth is I just have a safer addiction. I'm not better than anyone. I'm not better than new Christians. I'm not better than baby Christians. I'm not better than lost people. I'm not better than alcoholics. I'm not better than the thief. I might be better at covering it. See, I've got Christian sins. I got sins that are okay. They're sins, but they're not as bad as yours. I might be self-righteous if I'm better than anyone. Because when I see the holy standard that we're all going to appear before, my sense of self-righteousness should be immediately vaporized. Vaporized. Gone. There is no place for self-righteousness in the life of a true follower of Jesus Christ. So God, forgive me. When your praise is not on my lips, God, forgive me. I might be self-righteous if I'm always on the move. You know what I'm talking about? Change jobs, change churches, change friends. Because when I stay too long anywhere or with anyone, I come face to face with the reality of myself. And I don't want my own reality. I want to feel better than others. So I must start over again and again and again so I can keep the charade going. That's why pastors don't stay at churches very long. We move on a lot because as soon as you find out we're not perfect, we have to go somewhere else for a couple of years where people think we're perfect until we're, they think we're not perfect. And then we have to go somewhere else until people who think we're perfect realize we're not perfect and then it's time to go somewhere else and so we just keep moving or we can just stay for 26 years and you can find out i'm just one sinner preaching to a bunch of sinners how we can all sin a little bit less honestly this this is really not about i have a great pastor this is i have a sinful pastor who struggles like i do but we just serve an awesome god Change churches. As soon as we get uncomfortable, maybe somebody finds out something we've done, and God forbid we would judge him for that, but we do. And the quickest way out is just let's go find somewhere else to worship until, of course, we find out that church isn't perfect either, or they find out we aren't, so we go somewhere else. And how sad is it that we spend our lives just, just moving? Moving friends. You know, I got, I got this friend, but we're not friends anymore because I found out they did this and, or they found out I did this and so now I got to go find someone else and it's just a vicious cycle. And you might be self-righteous if you're always on the move. Listen, don't try to protect your self-righteousness. Confess it, don't cover it. We're covering way too much stuff. We're covering our text messages. We're covering our tracks. We're covering our website 
We're, cover, we're covering stuff. We're just driving ourselves crazy trying to cover all the things that I'm just, nobody can find out. How miserable is that? Just confess it. Some of the greatest conversations husbands you'll have with your wives and wives you'll have with your husbands is when you come clean of the stuff you've been covering. Teenagers, when you go to dad and say, dad, I got to talk, man. Dads, when you come clean and say, family, I've dropped the ball. Say, yeah, but what if I do that? Then they won't think. Yeah, exactly. They'll know what we already know. We're not perfect. We're not righteous. We serve a righteous God. The only thing righteous in us is his righteousness, not ours. Isn't this a victory verse? Isn't this amazing? Isn't this freeing and powerful to realize you don't have to be awesome? <laughs> you just serve an awesome God. <laughs> and because he's awesome, we honestly can, in many ways, just ride his coattails. And just worship him. And give him glory. Let's finish this victory verse. It's pretty awesome. I love it. Look at verse Five again, the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, and I said, woe is me, woe is me. Boy, this sounds just like the prayer we prayed a moment ago, Jordan, just like the prayer. It's just a little shorter, but it's the same thing. It's the same exact thing we just did, church. It's the same thing. Woe is me. I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphims flew to me. Don't miss this, church. He had in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin. Is atoned for, paid for. Jesus paid it all, church. All to him I owe. This morning we must recognize his holiness, my sin, and his grace. And that is a remedy for everything. Worshiping him and his holiness, recognizing our sin and receiving his grace, we can rejoice in the gospel today because of that. We can leave this place with victory this morning, recognizing that we don't have to try to be something we are not. Jesus paid it all. So this is my prayer for you this morning. Here it is on the screen and in your notes. Number one, see the Lord. See the Lord high and lifted up. See his train fill the temple. Let's not just enjoy his presence and his intimacy and his grace and and his mercy and his let's in, let, let's let's this morning worship the lion and the lamb let's thank god for the lamb who we can cuddle up with in a worship song but let's not forget the terror producing results of the of being in awe of a god who is alone worthy of our praise see the lord Number two, recognize his holiness. Recognize it. He is holy. I, I'm still human. I, I'm still a sinner. But I serve a God who is holy. See my sin. And then recognize my unworthiness. 
A moment ago during the offering, the song said, You are worthy and you alone, not you and me, God. You and me are worthy of my praise. No, no. You alone are worthy of my praise. Only one is worthy of my praise. Recognize my unworthiness and then receive his grace gratefully. And as a result of that, I'm not going to live as a self-righteous person. Rather, I'm going to live as a gratefully forgiven person who wants others to experience the same. Amen. And that's what I bring to you this morning as victory. You say, well, it's a little negative. Yeah, it's kind of like last night's game. The shot didn't go in, but it was the best thing that ever happened to us. It was the best thing that ever happened to us. You see, all we want is winning shots. But sometimes we got to fall on our face and say, woe is me. Woe is me. There is no true worship of God until there's a recognition of my sin and my unworthiness. So this morning... I'm going to just ask you as we sing, and the worship team's going to come, and we're going to lead you in an old hymn. It's a powerful old hymn. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, we're going to sing it together. And as we sing, you may feel led to come forward and find a place on the altar. I had the chance to pray with a young man this morning. What a sweet time we had together at this altar. You may need someone to pray with you. We're going to be here to do that. If the Holy Spirit is drawing you for salvation... We want to encourage you to come. If you feel like God is calling you right now to repent of your sins and to trust Christ as Savior, this is a great moment to do that. You can have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life today. You can be saved. But if you feel like this morning you just need to sing and worship and concentrate and focus on Him as His glory fills this place, then you do that. Whatever you need to do, you just take time to do it. I'm going to pray. We're going to stand and just let you respond as you feel led. Father, I love you. I thank you, God, for what you're teaching me and how you're working, Lord, in in my life, in my heart, to understand just how, how great it is to be in your presence. I'm so undeserving. And yet, God, you touch my lips, my undeserving lips, my ungrateful lips, at times my perverse lips. And yet, God, you have touched them and you have put on my lips praise because you alone are worthy. God, please help me, help my family, help our church family to not just enjoy the intimacy, the closeness, of the Lamb. But God, may we bow to the terror of the lion. May we be awestruck by your presence. May we even fall in humility at your feet. Confess our sin and worship the only one worthy of our praise. I love you, Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Shall we stand?